Your name. 
just bless your name this morning, Lord. We just, you are the God of glory, the God of praise. We just, Lord, just ask you to come this morning. Be with us. Uh, allow us to, uh, to enter into your presence this morning. Um, just, to, just move us this morning in whatever you do uh, with everything that you are. Uh, God, we just give you the glory. Um, we just thank you for this opportunity just to come, um, just to worship you, and just to enjoy uh, what you have to offer for us this morning. Um, God, you know our hearts. You know the place that we are. You know the place that we need to be. God, just uh, do your work upon our lives this morning. And we just pray these things in your name. Amen.
seated. Hey, good morning. We're glad you guys are here with us. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 14. We were in Matthew chapter 14 last week. We'll be in it again this week. Um, I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, and if you know um, Pastor Dave, our lead pastor, he's not here today. They're getting back from vacation. Um, but, uh, so I can mention him because he's not here to stop me. But um, his 10-year his anniversary of being on staff uh, is this Tuesday, and then Wednesday is his birthday. And so um, I'm going to challenge you guys, okay? I want to challenge us as a body to just make this week his favorite week of the year and pour on encouragement to him uh, for what God has done in him and through him over these last 10 years. And then however old he is, I think he's like 41 or something like that, or will be. Um, but, but to just email him, text him, call him, uh, take him out for lunch. He doesn't like coffee. We're praying for him. Um, but just do those things and encourage him. I know I am greatly uh, encouraged by his friendship, by his partnership in the gospel, and, uh, and I know that you are too. And so I just wanted to bring that up so that you can encourage him that way. Um, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to talk about the account of Jesus walking on the water. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and John. We're going to look at Matthew's account of it today, but we'll kind of um, take a peek at some of the things that Mark and John have to say because they give us a little bit better, uh, not, not better, but a little bit more complete picture of the whole event. Uh, and so uh, we, will, we will stay in Matthew, but we'll, we'll be kind of touching on those other two accounts. Something to note in Matthew's account here is the word uh, the use of the word immediately. You want to pay attention to when you hear that word because in this passage, it's used three separate times. And each time in this passage in particular, it will refer to something that Jesus does to protect and to care for his disciples. Okay? And so this account takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000. Pastor John talked about that last week. So if you missed that message, uh, you can go online and, and listen to that one. Um, but after they feed the crowds, Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat and head out to sea towards Capernaum. This, this, boat, uh, this is a boat trip that these disciples would not forget. And you, neither would you if you were in the same boat as they were. And so we're going to read Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, and then I want to pray. And then we'll get into the message here. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately... He made the disciples get out and get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, Command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why do you doubt? 
When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power, along with your spirit, to change us, to give us a clearer picture of who you are, to, to give us a, a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for us, and to help us grow to be more like him. And so we pray that you would do those things, work that in us this morning, so that we can put our trust fully in Christ. Amen. A group of men were in their boat one night out on a lake, and uh, while they were out on this lake, this, this, this huge storm suddenly rolled in. It's dark, it starts getting windy and rainy, and, and, and the storm rolls in, and, and the, the waters start to churn, and, and uh, the waves start smacking against the boat, and they start coming up over the boat, and they start filling the boat, and, and all of the men in, the, in this boat, they, they start to, to, um, to panic, they start to fear because the boat is sinking. Everyone except one person, and that person is sleeping in the back of the boat. And they have no idea why he's asleep. They're, I mean, they're getting soaking wet, the boat's going under, and so they yell at him and they say, why aren't you afraid? Why don't you care that we're going to die? And so he kind of gets roused and he wakes up and he looks at them and, and he asks them, why are you afraid? And he says, then he does something that, um, that they're not expecting. He turns from them and he speaks to the wind and the waves. And he tells them to stop. And they stop. And the disciples, this is the story of Jesus calming the storm. The disciples, they, they, they look at him and they ask this question. They say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now this story of Jesus calming the storm, it takes place on the Sea of Galilee, about six months earlier than the story that we're going to read today. And we're going to keep this story in mind as we work through our passage today because the disciples ask an important question at the end of, uh, of that, when Jesus calms the storm, and they realize the answer to that question at the end of our passage today. Jesus calmed the storm, and they said, what, who is this? What, what kind of man is this? Who is this man? And then here he comes walking on the water to them, and they say, this man is the Son of God. You see, the most important question that you can ask, that you should ask, and that you must answer is, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Now, your answer to that question will not only determine how you respond to the winds and the waves of life's uncertainties, but also it will ultimately confront you with the necessity, the need to respond to Jesus Christ himself. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then we have every reason to fear and to doubt everything in this life and in uh, everything after this life. But if Jesus is the Son of God, then we have every reason to trust him with our lives, both now and for eternity. See, the truth is that we are more content to fear and to doubt than we are to trust. We're some, somehow comforted by the notion that fear and doubt are natural things that we experience in life. And if we're afraid or uncertain in a given situation, that just means that we're normal. We're processing it like everybody, like everybody else does. But fear and doubt offer us no comfort. They have no true 
uh, uh, peace to give us. The Bible never paints fear and doubt in a good light, and we'll see that today. In reality, fear and doubt, they harden our hearts to the one who can truly give us peace and assurance that we are looking for, and we only find peace and assurance when we trust him. Jesus is the Son of God, so we must trust him. We've got to trust him to calm our fears. We've got to trust him to remove our doubts, and we've got to trust him to soften our hearts. So let's look at these verses again. We'll start the first couple verses together. 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. In verse 22, we find the, very, the, the first uh, use of the word immediately. Now, immediately it says Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and leave while he stayed back and dismissed the crowds. Remember, he's going to do something to protect and to care for them because of this word here. Okay, that's a, that's a signal for us. But, but how is putting them in a boat and sending them away protecting them? John's gospel is uh, helpful in this case to give us a clear picture of what's going on. In John chapter 6, he tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000, that the people were prepared to take Jesus by force and make him king. But that's not why he's here. And he, know, he, he knew how quickly that the 12 disciples could be caught up in the hype. They were pretty easily swayed. And so he didn't just suggest that they get in the boat. The the, the scripture says that he made them get in the boat and go on ahead of him. It was for their own good. He didn't want them to be distracted from the mission. Jesus came to die, not to overthrow the Roman government. And he had more to reveal to the 12 before he would be crucified. They didn't know it, but he was protecting them by sending them away. And so then he dismissed the crowds before they could... Um, muster anything up and, and do anything. And then Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Now remember last week, that's why they're here in this remote place in the first place. They came to get away, to pray, to, to um, refresh and recharge. But when they got to the, to the shore, they saw these huge crowds of people and Jesus had compassion on them. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he spent all day feeding or uh, uh, teaching them and healing uh, their, their sick and wounded. And then he, in the evening, when that came, they fed uh, the 5,000, which John told us last week is closer to 10,000 when you include the women and children. So we're not told specifically here why Jesus went up to pray. Maybe it was just to re-commune um, with the Heavenly Father. Maybe it was uh, to pray for the disciples for what they're about to experience uh, throughout this night. Maybe it's both. What we do know is that he stayed there praying well into the night. And when he was done, he turned his eyes to the water. He saw his disciples and he started to head to them on foot. So let's read 24 through 27 here. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea and very early, very early in the morning, <clears throat> when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. See, we need to trust Christ to calm our fears. 
when we can't see clearly and when we can. Now, the Sea of Galilee, there's a, there'll be a picture up here, hopefully, uh, of it. Um, this is a NASA satellite image of it. Uh, it was more like a lake. It was a large lake. It's about 13 miles long north to south. At the widest point, it's about 8 miles wide, around 150 feet deep at its deepest. And it was known for producing these violent storms because uh, the mountain ranges around it, the cooler winds would swirl through those valleys. And when they came out on the lake and collided with that warm air, these huge violent storms would, would um, blow up on the water. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of a first century um, fishing boat, it was about 26 and a half feet long. So that's about from me to the wall here, Okay. 26 and a half feet long. It's about seven and a half feet wide. That's the stage, front of the stage to uh, the, uh, the screen here. And then about four and a half feet tall. So it's about, come, would come up to here on my chest. Holds about 15 guys, five of which would be um, the crew for the boat to, to row. Four oars and then uh, a sail. And it was a simple sail, just a single sail. And so um, they were often used uh, near the shore because that's where the winds were more favorable. But the winds were not favorable here in, this, uh, in these conditions. The sail was useless because of the storm, and so they were rowing all night long. They left in the evening, and now it's almost daybreak, and John's account says that they rowed for three or four miles over that course of time. Have you ever been in a John boat or a kayak or something like that, and, and like you're on the opposite side of where you need to be, and you need to get back to the other side, and the wind is just right in your face? I've done that once. I don't ever want to do it again, okay? We have the option to, um, to trade the oars for like an outboard motor. They don't. And so they're rowing. They're rowing all night long, and, and, and they're just getting exhausted. In verse 24, it says that, uh, that they are being battered by the waves and that the wind was against them. Now, the word battered here in the original language means to be physically tortured or tormented. And so they're rowing for hours through the dead of night directly into a strong headwind, and they're being physically tortured by the waves. Now, that does not sound like a fun trip to me. But I think it's interesting to note that in all three of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, um, none of them at this point mention that the disciples are afraid. See, six months earlier when Jesus was sleeping in the boat and it was filling up and they were going down, they were terrified in the same conditions, wind and waves. But, but here, uh, they're, they're being physically battered by the waves, but, but they're not sinking. They're actually making progress, albeit very slowly. But as long as they stay afloat, as long as they keep moving, uh, they're not afraid, or at least it doesn't say that they are. Many of those disciples were fishermen by trade, and they made their living on the Sea of Galilee. So they're used to the storms. That wasn't a surprise. Uh, fishing was often done at night back then. And so um, they're, they're out there on the water in the middle of the night. That's, that's kind of in their element. And so they're, they're struggling. They're working hard to, to keep moving. But they're moving. Have you ever battled something in your life for a long time and thought that as long as you stay afloat, as long as you just kind of keep moving, you could ride it out. You, you find safety in the familiar. It, it might not be totally safe, but at least it's, it, it's something that you know. You hold on to that and you just try to endure. The stress of that is, is just exhausting, right? 
And exhaustion makes you more susceptible to fear when your situation changes and you see something outside the boat that shouldn't be there. Now imagine you've been fighting this storm all night long. You've been smacked in the face by the wind and the waves. You're soaking wet, and you just kind of turn your head to to try and get just a, a, a few seconds of relief. And when you do that, then you see it. It's the figure of a man, and it's standing on the water. Not swimming in the water, not wading in the water, but standing on top of the water. Now, it's a com- it was a common belief back then at, at, at that point that, that, that demons uh, lived in the realm of the sea and that whenever the waters would start to churn, that a demon was about to show itself. And so it was clear to the disciples that no human being could walk on the waves, right? So when they saw Jesus walking up to them with the seas churning, they naturally, because of that um, way of thinking, they thought he was a ghost. And so they cried out in fear. Now, that's Bible language um, for they screamed, okay? Kids, what do you think that sounded like? I want you to help me out, okay? I don't think your parents really grasp what's happening here, okay? So I want, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to give me just the, 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 the most terrifying scream that you can think of, okay? Are you ready? One, two, three. I'm not really convinced with this side over here. <laughs> but there's a little baby over there, so we won't do it again. That was terrifying. Um, they screamed. Look, look h- how would you feel if, if, you're, if you're just being, I mean, you are exhausted. It's night, you're in the middle of a storm, you look out on the water, and, and you don't, there's somebody out there standing on it. And he's walking towards you, Okay. I think I would scream too. Now the disciples, they were, they were seeing clearly, but they, they weren't at the same time. See, they, they saw someone walking on the water, but they didn't realize that it was Jesus. And so fear messes with your eyesight, right? So when you, your eyes fail in the midst of a struggle and you can't see Jesus in the midst of it, you don't recognize his presence in your life, you need to pay attention with your ears and you need to listen to his words. How comforting are the words of Jesus when we are in our deepest struggles? When it's difficult to see, when you're exhausted and scared because you've been battling the wind and the waves for so long and and something else unexpected comes your way, you need the reassurance in the words of Jesus. There is immediate comfort to be found in the word of God, no matter what trial you face. In, in, in verse 27, you see that second use of the word immediately. So this means that what comes next is an act of protection and an act of care on Jesus' be, uh, part on behalf of the disciples. Kent alluded to this, um, but notice the contrast here. The disciples, they're screaming. They're terrified. Jesus is calmly walking on the water, and he doesn't shout. It says he spoke. He spoke to them, and he said, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus knows what they, that they need not fear, but, that, uh, but they don't know that, and so he's quick to reassure them. We need to know that we need not fear, and the best person to remind us of that is Christ himself. 
So we need to be in his word daily. We need to do it while the seas are calm before the trial comes. We've got to internalize it and hide it in our hearts so that when you're in the midst of the storm, the words of Jesus will remind you to take courage and to not be afraid. That phrase, do not be afraid, shows up eight different times in Matthew's gospel. Two times the phrase was spoken by an angel and the rest by Jesus. God wants us to know that because of Jesus, we need not fear when we can't see clearly, nor do we need to fear when we can. Look at verse 28. Peter says, Lord, if, Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. 29, Jesus said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Peter is naturally going to be the first one to reply to Jesus here. He's often saying or doing things without really thinking uh, about them. But I'm intrigued by his response here. Now, at first, it might uh, sound like he doesn't believe that it's really Jesus, that, that Peter's testing him before he, he's willing to get out of the boat. Like, look, if it's you, you got to tell me to do this, and then I'll believe you. Uh, but why wouldn't he just ask Jesus to calm the storm? If he's really doubting that that's Jesus, why wouldn't he do, ask him to do something that he's seen him do already to prove that? But he says, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come, and Peter wastes no time getting out of the boat. He's not hesitant. It's like, bam, he's, all, he's over the side, and he's on the water, not in it, but on it with Jesus. It's almost as if Peter in that moment is saying, Lord, if it's you, I want to be there. That's where I want to be, with you, not in here in this boat. I want to be where you are. But it's also interesting to me to note the element of trust here that Peter has, at least initially. It's short-lived, but it's there at first. It's clear to him that if Jesus tells him to come out onto the water, then Jesus will enable him to come to him on the water. When God calls you to do something, he will enable you to do it. There's no second guessing when Peter hears the command to come. Peter climbs right out of the boat and steps onto the stormy sea, and he sees Jesus clearly in that moment. But that confidence is short-lived because Peter shifts his focus off of Christ, and suddenly he sees the strength of the wind, and he's afraid. Fear filled him like a lead weight, and he started to sink. Now, this is not some kind of slow descent. Okay? It's not like quicksand. I don't know why, but I always kind of pictured that when I read this story. But he's standing on water. And when his faith fails him, look, what happens when you jump over a boat? You go right under, don't you? Peter's falling fast. And while Peter was in the boat, rowing against the wind, we're never told that he was afraid of it. But now that he's out of the boat and is fully exposed and vulnerable, he is terrified of the very thing that he's been fighting all night long. It's pretty ironic, really. When Peter was in the boat, he was afraid of Jesus. And when he's out of the boat with Jesus, he's afraid of the wind. Now, the Greek word used to describe the strength of the wind here means to wield force or authority. You see, it's really an authority issue. P 
Peter is putting the authority of the wind against the authority of Christ in this moment. Jesus said, don't be afraid in verse 27. And Peter saw the strength of the wind and he was afraid in verse 30. He gave more authority to the one thing than he gave to the one who has authority over all things. So what or whom do you give authority to over Christ? Maybe it's a a doctor's diagnosis or a bill that you can't pay. A deadline at work, a difficult family member, a desire to avoid conflict, pressure to maintain an image, school grades, the political environment, dating or marital stress, addiction. What else? What is it for you? What are the things that drive fear into your heart instead of faith in Christ, what things are you giving authority to over Jesus? Now, I'm not trying to minimize these things or or whatever else it is that you might be thinking of right now. When Peter got out of the boat, he didn't suddenly realize that there was actually no wind and waves. No, he actually felt the intensity of it fully and completely. So I'm not saying that your situation is not intense. But Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he failed to see the greater authority of the one who was standing there with him, untouched and unshaken by the very thing that caused Peter to fear. When you give way to the intensity of the trials you face, you give more authority to those trials than you give to Christ in your life. They lead to nothing but exhaustion and fear and they will pull you under, leaving you crying for help. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who has authored and is perfecting your faith. As Peter was sinking, he cried out, Lord, save me. He had another moment of clarity here. He knew that Jesus was the only one that could save him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We need to trust Christ to remove our doubt because he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he'll do. Let's take a closer look at a few things here. First of all, Jesus walked on water. He walked on water. It says so in verse 25 and 26. Only God can do that. In Job chapter 9, Job describes God, God, this way. In verse 8, he says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God alone walks on the waves. In Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water, he, he makes a note in uh, Mark 6, 48, that Jesus wanted to pass by them. Now, this is a helpful detail because it alludes to Jesus' motive for coming out to them on the sea in this way. In Exodus 33, God passes by Moses on the mountain and reveals his glory to him. On the same mountain in 1 Kings 19, God passes by Elijah in the same manner, and he reveals his glory to Elijah through a soft whisper. Jesus wasn't going to go past the boat to sneak around them. If he wanted to do that, he could have gone all the way around so they couldn't see him. He was intending to pass by them to reveal his glory to them, the glory of the one true God. Colossians 2.9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells, bodily in Christ. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is God in the flesh. He is 
fully God and fully human together in the person of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dave mentioned that all the miracles that Jesus did were meant to reveal God's glory through his son. And this is what's happening here on the water as Jesus is passing by the boat. And in case you need further proof that Jesus is who he says he is, let's just look back again at his statement in verse 27. He says, it is I. Now the Greek here literally means I am, I am. And if you look at a Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 3, when Moses asks God what his name is, God says, I am who I am. It's the same exact phrase. This is not a coincidence. Jesus is revealing his divinity and his glory to these men because he is who he says he is. And as the seas are raging around them and Jesus calls out to them, do not be afraid. The disciples would have been reminded. They would recognize that voice. And they would have been reminded of that same voice speaking to them just a few months earlier when the wind and the waves were wrapping around them. And they would have heard him tell those wind and the waves to stop. Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, Lord God of armies, who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. If he is who he says he is, then Jesus will do what he says he will do. Look, he told Peter to come out on the water. And Peter came out on the water. And when Peter feared and he cried out for Jesus to save him as he began to sink, Jesus reached his hand out and he grabbed hold of Peter and he pulled him up. In verse 31, we see that final use of the word Immediately, immediately it says, Jesus reached out his hand and he caught hold of Peter. He didn't wait. He didn't stand there and let Peter kind of bob up and down in the water a couple times and be like, where's your faith, Peter? Tell me who's stronger than the wind of the waves. Right? Tell me you trust me. He didn't even say, you of little faith, why did you doubt before he picked him up? No, he immediately reached his hand down and he grabbed Peter and he pulled him up out of the water. It says he caught hold of him. Now, the day after this happens, Jesus is going to be speaking to the crowds again. And in John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now imagine Peter hearing those words. When just the night before, Peter had wanted to come out on the water to Jesus, and Jesus said, come. And Jesus didn't turn him away. And then when Peter began to sink, Jesus reached his hand out and he caught Peter and he raised him up out of the water. Now these things had to be running through Peter's mind as he listened to Jesus speak these words. It's no wonder that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah a, few, uh, a short time later while they're in Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Jesus begins to reveal the ultimate purpose of his mission, what he had come down from heaven to do, the will of the Father. 
Jesus said that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the Jewish leaders and that he would be killed and then rise from the grave three days later. And Jesus did what he said he would do. He suffered at the hands of men. He was battered and tortured by a wave of Jewish officials and Roman soldiers. He submitted himself to the authority of a Roman governor. He was whipped. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves where he hung and he died to pay the price for our sin. The people shouted at him on the cross, if you are the son of God, Take yourself down. Come down off the cross. But because he is the son of God, Jesus stayed up there. He stayed up on that cross and so that he could save us. Listen, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. We can have peace with God because Jesus was punished in our place. By his wounds, scripture tells us, we are healed. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we've each gone our own way instead of following his. And the weight of our sin is pulling us under. But because Jesus is the Son of God, we can cry out, Lord, save me, and immediately he will reach out his hand and he will pull us up. Because Jesus is the Son of God, death did not win. It did not, he did not remain in the grave. No, he conquered death and he walked out of that tomb on the third day so that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and will be raised together with him on the last day. Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt that Jesus can heal your wounded heart? Why do you doubt that Jesus can provide for you? Why do you doubt that Jesus loves you? Why do you doubt that Jesus can protect you? Why do you doubt that Jesus can restore that broken relationship? Why do you doubt that Jesus is in control? Why do you doubt that Jesus rules the storms of your life? Why do you doubt that Jesus can save you? I need to hear these words too because I doubt and I have fear. These are not my words. This question is not my question. It comes from Jesus. Why do you doubt? Trust him. Cry out to him and trust him. Believe in the promise that he gave you that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. He will not lose anyone who comes to him in faith. You see, your greatest need has already been met in Jesus Christ. He died for your sin in your place, and he rose from the grave to give you life. You need only to put your trust in him and what he has done for you, and immediately you will be brought under his care and protection. And in every storm you face, he will be right there with you, holding you tightly in his grasp. James tells us, to consider it great joy when we face trials because they test our faith and they build our endurance and help us mature. And God freely offers us wisdom in the midst of our, child, our trials, but James says that, that we should ask for that wisdom in faith without doubting. And here's his reason. He says, The doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person is double-minded and unstable and should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. We need to trust Christ to remove our doubts and we need to trust Christ to soften our hearts so that we welcome him 
and so that we worship him. Look at verse 32. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, John's account says that they were willing to take him on board. I love that. They were willing to take him on board. Jesus got into the boat with them. Notice that, uh, that it's only then that the wind ceased. And that's because the point isn't to sail on smooth seas for the rest of our life once we put our trust in Christ. Does he have the, the power to calm the wind and the waves? Yes, they've seen this already. Jesus could have walked out on, uh, to them on calm waters, let alone the, the raging sea, but he chose to display his power to them in this way so that they would desire his presence, that they would welcome him into the boat. Jesus was close enough to Peter to reach out and grab him immediately when Peter cried out to him. And they were close enough to the boat for the other disciples that were in the boat, like Matthew and John, to see all of this happen. Jesus is the Son of God who is an ever-present help in times of trouble. He is the one who told the disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he sent them out to tell the world the good news and to make more disciples. Jesus came to them in the middle of the storm. He rescued them, and then he got into the boat with them. It didn't matter if the wind ceased or not. God himself was with them. Are you going through trials alone? Are you hoping for softer seas or are you welcoming Jesus into the boat with you no matter what the, the, the situation is around you? Don't let your heart be troubled. He has overcome the world. This is a, a promise that he has spoken. Peace isn't found in the bettering of your situation. Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Can he calm the seas around you? Yes. Will he? He might. Sometimes he won't. But he does promise to be with you always. So welcome him into your situation. Ask him for a deeper sense of his presence and to strengthen you with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. That's Colossians 1, 11, or, yeah, 1, 11 and 12. We can, we can say these things. We can confess these things to God. And as we trust him to soften our hearts, we will not only welcome him into more and more of our trials, but we will worship him in the midst of them. Look at the last verse here. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Now Mark ends his account in a peculiar way. He says that they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Now Mark is linking this account with Jesus walking on the water back to the feeding of the 5,000. He's saying that the disciples missed it the first time. They should have known that this was the Son of God by the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. But their hearts were hardened to that truth, and so they missed it. But here it all came together when Jesus entered the boat. Their hearts had finally been softened to understand who he really was and what uh, that he was the Son of God. And so they bowed down to him in the boat and they confessed his sonship as an act of worship. Jesus is at work in our lives consistently and constantly and we often miss what he's doing to reveal himself to us because our hearts have been hardened by fear and by doubt. But when we do see him, when we do notice his presence, we need to bow our hearts in worship 
uh, to him, to confess who he is, to, to sing his praises, to declare what he has done and what he can do, to bow in awe of his love for us. The more we do that, the more our hearts will remain softened to the sense of his presence in our lives, whether the seas are raging or not. That's why we gather together on a Sunday morning, to declare these truths to one another, to celebrate those things together, to encourage our hearts so that when we go back out and battle the seas, we know that Jesus is with us. In Genesis, God brought order to chaos as his spirit hovered over the waters and the earth was formed. In the Gospels, his son tread on the waves of the sea in order to reveal the glory of God to his disciples. And in Revelation, we're told about a day that is yet to come when the heavens and the earth are made new and the sea is no more. God himself will dwell among us and he will be our God and we will be his people. Can we grasp that? That's gonna happen. There will be no more trials No more pain because the things of old have passed away and the one who sits on the throne will make all things new. Worship team, if you want to come back up. Is Jesus the Son of God? If not, then we have every reason to fear and doubt in this life and we have no foundation for faith or hope for our future. But if he is the Son of God, then we have every reason to trust him with our lives. How do you answer that question? In John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the grave, he appears to the disciples here on the Sea of Galilee one more time. Now, they've been out fishing, Peter and a few other of the disciples. They've been out fishing all night in a boat. They haven't caught anything. Jesus appears to them on the shore, and he calls out to them and says, Have you caught anything? And they say, No. He says, Throw your net over the other side of the boat. So they do that, and they haul in a load so large that they can't even bring it into the boat. And it's at that moment that one of the disciples recognizes that it's Jesus. And so here Peter is, jumps out of the boat, starts swimming to shore. He doesn't even care about walking on water this time. He's just going to Jesus. And when they got to shore, Jesus invited them to breakfast with him. And you know what they had? Fish and loaves. In John 21, 12, it says none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. There was no more fear. All doubt had been removed. Their hearts were softened and were beaming at the sight of the risen Savior, the Son of God, their King. They trusted him with their lives and he sent them out to tell the story, the good news of the gospel to all the world. And that's why we're here today to do the same thing. Jesus is the Son of God. Trust him to calm your fears. Jesus is the Son of God. Trust him to remove your doubt. Jesus is the Son of God. Trust him to soften your hearts. Trust him. Know him. Worship him. Follow him. And then tell others of the hope that they can have and the peace that they can find in him because Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for how you have revealed your son to us. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom through it. Now together, as we respond in worship, let us do so, trusting more in Christ. For your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.
morning's offering. Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would come, and Lord, that you would just uh, just thank you so much for just the opportunity we have, Lord, just to know that you are able, you are able to pick us up, 
We were able to pick Peter up out of that boat when he was sinking and in that water, bring him into the boat, Lord. You are able to do everything, all the immeasurable things, Lord, that you're able to do for us. God, we just ask that you would just multiply this offering, uh, that we would continue to do the work here and just continue to do uh, everything that you have called us to do.
Jesus is the Son of God. Let's live like it this week. Let's trust him. Thanks for coming. You guys are dismissed.